Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Uh, the account of John's Gospel, chapter 13. And we'll look at one verse in particular that we'll be focusing on this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, and verse 1. John 13, verse 1, please follow along as I read. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Let me ask that we pray once more together. Let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, please assist us in our consideration of the Word. This time is useless if you do not come in power, if you do not come by your Spirit and open our minds to understand the Scriptures. So we ask, Father, please come by the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, we return this morning to the Gospel of John. We've been away from uh, the Gospel of John for about a month, excuse me, three months actually. And we return this morning to our regular exposition of uh, the Gospel of John, but it's been a while, and I'd like to spend the first part of our time this morning essentially um, reintroducing, reacquainting us with the Gospel of John, re-entering our consideration of John's Gospel, and then the latter half of the text, uh, the text this morning will be to look at John 13 and verse 1. But we return this morning to our regular exposition of this Gospel in John uh, 13, but I want to simply briefly um, reconsider some things that we looked at together in the Gospel of John, the earlier chapters in the Gospel of John, leading up to what is a major transition in John's Gospel in chapter 13. Uh, so let's start with this for our review of the Gospel of John. We said that there are two sections in John's Gospel in particular, uh, two sections that are fundamental to properly understand the Gospel of John, the purpose of the Gospel and the message of the Gospel. There are two parts in the Gospel of John that are especially important in understanding the message of the Gospel of John. Now, I know it's been a while, uh, but do you remember what those two sections are? Uh, the first is, of course, uh, what we call the purpose statement of John's Gospel, and that's recorded for us in John chapter 20, verse 31. It's really not a full passage, just one verse. And it's there in John 20, verse 31, the Apostle John gives us the very purpose for why he's writing the gospel, why he presented the gospel narrative to us. So uh, John 20, it's actually verse 30, starting out where John says, you know, Jesus did many things in the presence of his disciples, many signs, many wonders. Uh, but then in verse 31, he says this, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. It says, these things have been written. That's, that's the record of the signs that are included in John's gospel. There are seven of them total. But, but this narrative has been written. These signs have been recorded. This, this, this narrative of the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ, these things have been written. Uh, so that you may believe. Uh, that is to say, you the reader, us here gathered this morning, every one of us here today, these things have been written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, That is that the man Jesus is the Christ, the the longed-for Messiah, uh, the coming one, the anointed one, the Christ, the one uh, uh, to whom all of the Old Testament Scripture pointed to. The focal point of the Scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is, that He is a partaker of the God, uh, the Godhead. He's a partaker of the divine nature. He is the Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, light of light, God of God. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, that is by having faith in this one, this Christ, this Son of God, the Lord Jesus, by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, uh, not just in the uh, facts and narrative of what actually took place, but in trusting your whole soul with full faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ to be a Savior for sinners and Lord of all, that by believing, you may have life in His name. That is the reward that's held forward to all those who put their faith in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He will give everlasting life. He will give eternal life. He will give paradise to that one who comes in faith, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior for sinners. That's the the purpose statement. And uh, uh, if we understand the purpose statement, we have basically the the basic structure, the basic outline for the Gospel of John. Now, I wonder if you know the second section of John's Gospel uh, that that is important to understand the Gospel of John, sort of an interpretive key to the Gospel of John. The second section that is of great importance is, of course, the prologue of John's Gospel. Uh, That is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, 1 through 18. It's often referred to as the prologue. Uh, Those first 18 verses, uh, if you know music, if you know like a symphony, uh, it's like an overture. What does the overture of a symphony lay out for you? Kind of the major themes that are going to continue throughout the symphony itself. The prologue is like that. John gives us 18 verses there that sets forth the program of John's Gospel. And there is nothing like the prologue in all of the Bible. It's very interesting, you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, very quickly jump right into a historical narrative, a birth narrative, or a genealogy or something like that. But if you read John 1, 1 through 18, you realize you're in very different territory, very, very profound and significant and cosmic categories and thoughts that are put forward in those first verses. You know the passage, hopefully, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the light is not overcome it. First five verses there. It's almost like entering in on a dream or something like that. In the beginning was the Word, which, which could be translated, could be understood. In the beginning, God expressed Himself. In the beginning, God's self-expression was, was there. In the beginning was the Word, the, the logos, the self-expression, the Word. And the Word was with God. Uh, that is to say, He was God's own fellow, uh, distinct from God, distinct person, 
God's fellow, God's companion. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's self-expression, God's own fellow distinct from God, and He was God. That is to say, He was, is a partaker of the divine nature. He Himself is God, and He was in the beginning with God. And He's God's agent in creation. That is to say, He created the world. Uh, The Word, the Logos, who was with God and who was God, created the world by the Word of His power. It's God's agent in creation, but also God's agent in revelation, God's agent of salvation. In Him was life. That is to say, all life is bound up in Him, and there is no life outside of Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He enlightens every man and woman. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, mystics and sophists could enter into John's opening verses here. You have these very profound and cosmic categories, word, logos, life, light. And some of those early sophists would have some categories here to perhaps work with. But by the time you get to verse 14, the distinctive Christian view of the word is made manifest. We read in John 1 verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Now we're in different territory. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. John says, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son sent from the Father full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, that is to say He entered the sphere of history and tangibility. He's full of grace and truth. And we've, we've seen His glory, John says. We've seen the glory of the Son of God as the only Son sent from the Father. Jesus has come in the flesh. The Word has been made flesh. And then we read in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. And Moses got a sliver of it, but no one's really ever seen God. Isaiah never really saw God. No one has ever seen God. The only God, the Word made flesh, who is in the bosom of the Father or who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The word there, the Greek word there, is the word that we would translate in English, exegesis. That is to say, He, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He has exegeted God. He has explained God. He has disclosed the person of God Himself. Now, we don't see Him in all His glory, but we do see God in the person of Jesus Christ. We sing this, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We see Him veiled in flesh. We couldn't bear the full sight of His own glory. But if you want to know what God is like, if you want Him explained, if you want Him disclosed, look at Jesus. Veiled in flesh. We see the Godhead, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who tabernacled among us, whose presence was with us. And we've seen Him, John says. The Word made flesh has explained Him, has exegeted Him. Well, now, where do things go from there? You have the purpose statement, 
You have the prologue. He who has mastered John 20, verse 31, in the prologue of the book, has really mastered the gospel of John. But where do things go from there? What did we see over those eight months in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel? Of course, in John 1, the story of Jesus' public ministry begins. John 1 through John 12 is the story of Jesus' public ministry. It lasts for about three years, a little more than three years. And then John 13 and following is really just a record of a few days. It's the Last Supper and the arrest, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and then a short epilogue in verse, excuse me, chapter 21. But in the first 12 chapters, we have a little over three years of Jesus' doings out among the people in his public ministry. In chapter 1, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove as, as a seal. This is God's own Son in whom he is well pleased, and the Spirit not only descends upon him but remains upon him. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. In fact, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Signifying by those words, prophesying by those words, the death of the Son of God like a lamb to the slaughter. And it's in that first chapter, toward the end of that chapter, that Jesus calls his first disciples. More on them in a minute. In John chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle, his first sign. Do you remember what the first sign was? The first of his signs was uh, 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 executed at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and there he miraculously, supernaturally turned water into wine. And what is said about that first miracle is that Jesus displayed his glory through this sign that was executed in Cana in Galilee, and his disciples believed in him. Remember, John said, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And here in this miracle, which is largely private, but the disciples were given a window in. He manifested his glory, John says, in chapter 2, verse 11, and the disciples saw it and believed. In John chapter 3, perhaps the most well-known chapter in John's gospel, Nicodemus, the religious leader of the Pharisees, comes by night to talk to the Lord Jesus, and he wants to talk about religion. He wants to talk about true faith, and Jesus tells him, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. If anyone is to be right with God, if anyone is to be truly converted and regenerated, something needs to happen internally. So, so radical and fundamental a change must take place that the image the Lord Jesus uses is the image of new birth. To become a completely new person, to be born again by the Spirit of God, to be washed and to be cleansed and to be changed. Jesus is saying true religion requires a change supernaturally at the most fundamental level. You must be born Again, and then John comments, that very famous verse in John 3.16, that for all those who believe in the Son of God, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God has sent His Son into the world to be a Savior for sinners, and for any who believe on Him in faith and repentance, they will be saved and they will have everlasting life. But then John says an interesting thing in John 3, verse 19. Light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. No man comes to the light but hates the light and doesn't walk into the light lest his deeds be exposed. That is to say, the message of John in chapter 3 is that all of us, none of us, excuse me, are neutral by nature. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is born in sin with a natural native appetite for sin. 
People loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. None of us has an appetite for God. None of us has an appetite for light. We recoil from light. John tells us something needs to change. We need new birth, as Jesus says. Well, then in John chapter 4, Jesus is with a very different person from Nicodemus. He's with an immoral woman with, she's had five husbands previously, now a live-in boyfriend. She's caught up in all sorts of sexual relationships and perhaps abusive relationships. And here she is midday, and she's by Jacob's well, and Jesus is alone with her. And Jesus talks to her about living water. He says, I I would give to you, if you would ask, needy woman, living water. That is to say, you can have me like water, water that never fails, water that never runs out. She's going after all kinds of water, all kinds of springs, all kinds of fountain to quench her thirst for relationships and for sex and for affirmation, but Jesus says those wells will run dry. I am to you living water. If you come to me, you will never thirst. You will have living water for your soul. And the woman begins to talk to Jesus about who God is and where God can be found. She's a Samaritan there in Sychar. She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And she's, you know, there's this age-old debate about where God actually is. Is He on this mountain or is He in this mountain? And Jesus speaks to her about new covenant worship. He says, Uh, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. You see, God's presence will from now on be the person of Jesus Christ wherever God's people meet. It's not going to be about this mountain or that mountain. And the woman says, you know, when Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this to us. And Jesus does for her something he has yet done for anybody else in the book. He says, I who speak to you am he. He reveals to this poor and needy woman, I who speak to you, I am the Christ. The Messiah is here. The hour is coming and now is. And I can make you right with God. I can give you water that will satisfy your soul and you will have everlasting life. And she believes. And she goes back to Sychar and she bears testimony and then the people come out and they too meet with Jesus and they believe and it's on their lips that this pronouncement is made in verse 42. This is indeed the Savior of the world. Not of Jews only, but of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Self-righteous, externally clean, impressive scholars of the Bible, like Nicodemus who needs to be born again, and needy, sexually immoral women with no pedigree, all sorts of baggage. They will have Jesus, the Savior of the world, and the two of them will be united in a new people. Then in John 5, Jesus heals a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, and he does this on the Sabbath. He does this, uh, he he claims for himself the Sabbath exemption. Uh, He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. I have the right to do this. I don't need special permission to perform miracles on the Sabbath. And of course, this is seen to be blasphemy by his opponents, by the other Jews. And they want to arrest him. They want to kill him because he is making himself equal with God. Well, they're exactly right. But it's not blasphemy like they think, because this is not only a mere man. This is the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word made flesh. And He has the right to do what His Father does, because He is the Son of God. And He talks to them about this, and He he lists for them various witnesses to His deity, 
to who he is as the Christ, the Son of God. He says, you know, John the Baptist, you were willing to spend time in his light, and he bore witness about me. He, he, he says, my works bear witness about me. Who else can do the things that I'm doing but God? He says, my Father who is in heaven bears witness about me. And then he says a profound thing in verse 39 of chapter 5. He says to his opponents, the self-righteous Jews who would arrest him if they could, he says, you search the Scriptures because you believe that in them you have everlasting life, but don't you know it is they who bear witness about me? I am the one to whom the Old Testament Scriptures pointed. If you're not seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, you're not reading it right. That's in essence what he says to his opponents. It is the Scriptures that bear witness about me. Chapter 6, Jesus is again among the crowds. He performs another sign. He feeds uh, the crowd of 5,000, miraculously provides them with food. The crowd, we believe, was probably larger than 5,000 people. Well, and they're all excited about this, the miraculous provision of food. We have our very own miracle-working boy that we could bring back to our hometown, and we could set him up as king, and we could have everything that we want. Well, Jesus didn't come up to set an earthly throne. Not yet. And so he departs from them. He goes over the sea, and they follow him. And Jesus then undertakes to explain to them the inner meaning of this miracle. He says, don't labor for the bread that perishes. This isn't about filling your stomach with bread, but labor for the gift of God that is unto eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever follows me will never thirst He who who eats of me will live. He says, I'm the bread of life. I fed you to show you who I am. What you need is me. Not just bread for a sunny afternoon. You need the person of Jesus Christ to be bread to you, to satisfy your soul. What Jesus is teaching us is that faith is so much more than simply believing the facts about the narrative of the gospel. It's having Jesus like bread like nutrition, like satisfaction, like laying hold of Jesus, eating Him, drinking Him, having Him, laying hold of Him, coming to Him. It is a whole soul running out to Jesus Christ in faith. He is the bread of life. Well, the crowds respond in rank unbelief. They all leave Him. They all leave Him. Those thousands leave Him. Jesus is undaunted, though, for He Himself says, Look, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Maybe these ones aren't His Father's. But all who the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And His disciples are there. He says to them, well, you too, leave me. And He says, Peter, speaking for the group, He says, Lord, where will we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. See, they belong to the Father and have been given from the Father to the Son, and He will not let them go. In chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's all sorts of speculation about who Jesus is. Is this really the Christ? When the Messiah comes, will He do better works than this man? All sorts of speculation. Well, the word is out about Jesus, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they actually sent officers to arrest Jesus, to take Him into custody. This is what Jesus does in verses 37 and 38. We read, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So, Jesus has picked picked the spotlight. 
He's standing up in the middle of the crowds. The officers are there to arrest him. On the last day of the feast, verse 37, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You Jews who are here, he came to his own, right? You Jews who are here, if you thirst, come to me and drink. Out of your heart, if you would believe in me, will flow rivers of living water. And it's interesting, the officers go back to the Pharisees who sent them there. They don't make the arrest. He's right there. He's, he's probably as close to them as I am to John Adam here. Here are the officers ready to take him into custody. They don't take him. And the Pharisees asked him, why, why didn't you make the arrest? Do you remember what they said? No one ever spoke as this man. You weren't there. No one ever spoke like this man. Could it be, it's speculation, but could it be that those officers saw his glory? Glory as of the only Son sent from the Father. Well, Jesus converses with his opponents in John 8. He then picks up this theme of light that was set forth in the prologue. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's talking to people in darkness, and he says, if you have me, you will have the light of life. If you believe in me, you will have the light of the world. Calling to mind many significant Old Testament passages like Isaiah 60. The prophecy of Isaiah where he says, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The people who dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus in John 18, or excuse me, 8 verse 12 says, I am the light of the world. Light has dawned upon the world and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And if you come to me, you'll have light. You'll be rid of all your darkness. I will make you safe from darkness and will give you the light of life. Well, he goes back and forth with his opponents in John 8. They start claiming uh, their status because they're attached to Abraham. They say, we're, we're sons of Abraham. We're fine. We don't need you. And Jesus, in so many words, makes the point that he himself is Abraham's Messiah. He says, he says don't you know Abraham saw my day and was glad? He looked ahead to me, Jesus says, but he raises the stakes even higher. He's not only Abraham's Messiah, he's Abraham's God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. The covenant name given by Yahweh to Moses in Exodus 3 at the feet of the burning bush. He says, Ahiah, Asher, Ahiah. Before Abraham was, I am. Of course, the opponents again mistake this for blasphemy. They pick up stones to stone him because he claims to be God. Again, true. In John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. That man is later kicked out of the synagogue for giving testimony about who Jesus is. Jesus then finds this poor man who's been abandoned by his family and abandoned by the religious leaders in his synagogue. He finds him like a lost little lamb. And Jesus reveals himself to this poor man and tells him, 
Uh, he is the Christ. And he allows him to see not only physically, but to see spiritually. John 10, that shepherd sheep imagery is developed and picked up. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know my sheep. I know my own. I know them by name, and they hear my voice, and they come out to my green pastures. And Jesus, the good shepherd, stands in contrast to all the frauds and all the false shepherds of Israel. He's nothing like those, those fake leaders who kicked that man out of the synagogue back in John 9. No, he's the real deal. He's the good shepherd. He's the noble shepherd. And what will be the distinctive of the good shepherd? The good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus foretells of his death. He will sacrifice himself for his own, sacrifice himself for the flock. In John 11, Jesus perhaps executes his crowning miracle prior to the cross and resurrection, of course. Lazarus, his dear friend, has died, and Jesus is talking to Lazarus' sister Martha. And he's trying to encourage Martha and to draw out Martha's faith, and he says, Martha, don't you understand? I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the life. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever follows me, though he die, yet shall he live. You need me, Martha. I am life. I am resurrection. There is no life outside of me. And if you have me, your resurrection and your life, and that actually happening in the days to come, is merely a formality. You need me the resurrection and the life. And this is what Jesus proves. For he goes to the grave of Lazarus and with a word raises him from the dead. Then John 12. We're almost at John 13. John 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's coming to the final week of his life. He fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. He comes in riding on a donkey's colt that was prophesied that Israel, your king, would come riding on a the donkey. And so Jesus assumes the moment. Here comes Israel's king, and they lay down palm branches in front of him. And he is moving now toward the triumphant and climactic hour. And Jesus says a peculiar thing in John 12, something completely unexpected by all those who were there, the crowds that have gathered before him. He begins to talk about his own death. That wasn't expected. The king has come. But, but see, he says... Unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, clearly no one at that time understood what this meant. But he's, he's saying he must die. He must fall to the ground and die, and he will bear much fruit, fruit beyond Jerusalem. The Greeks come. Remember in John 12? Already the gospel will begin to go to the nations and to the Gentiles. Jesus' death will be like a seed planted in the ground that will bear much fruit in the salvation of men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now we read in verse 37 as sort of a conclusion of this section of Jesus' public ministry. These three, three and a half years are coming to a close. And in verse 37 we read that though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe him. He had done all these things before them, and they did not believe him. And yet he says, once more before the crowds, verse 46, 
I have come into the world as light. If anyone believes in me, he will not remain in darkness. He stands before the crowds and once more offers himself as the Savior of the world. And then we get to John 13, and everything changes. Three and a half years, he's been out and about among the people, out and about among the Jews, out and about among his opponents, talking to various people, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, performing various signs and wonders. And then you get to John 13, verse 1. Jesus is in an upper room and the door is closed. First 12 chapters over three years. The last nine are just a few short days. What happens is the audience becomes more narrow. He's there now in the upper room with his intimates, his disciples. The next five chapters will cover just a few short hours. He's with his disciples in the upper room. The door is closed. He's no longer among the crowds, and all of a sudden time slows. From here on out, he will be with his disciples, and then in chapter 18, he will be arrested. Chapter 19, he will be crucified, will die, will be buried. In chapter 20, he will be raised from the dead. In chapter 21, he will restore Peter and visit again with his disciples. John 13 through 17, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, is a record of just a few hours with Jesus and his disciples. It is a record of the Last Supper. What happens at the Last Supper is Jesus washes the feet of his disciples in chapter 13. 14 through 16, you have some of the most intimate material on discipleship in all the Bible. Jesus talks about his relationship to them and his relationship to the Father and the life that he has within the Godhead and he invites them into this life and he speaks about the Holy Spirit who will come and will be a comforter to them and a counselor to them. He he talks about how, how true disciples abide in his love and abide in his word and keep his commandments and thereby bear much fruit. He talks to them about the persecution they're going to experience in the days ahead. He's he's preparing them in essence for his departure. But he won't leave them as orphans, he says. He'll send the Holy Spirit. And then we have what has to be one of the most precious chapters in all the Bible. We have John 17, which is the high priestly prayer. The audience has gotten as narrow as it could be. It's Jesus with his Father. And we have a record of this prayer. I was telling Pastor Ben earlier this morning, talking about the sermon, there were two young men just in the last year or two who approached me. Uh, These would be teenage guys who had recently been converted, and they said, can we study something together? And with both of them, I said, we're going to John 13 through 17. Because I would say there's no more important passage for disciples to understand and appreciate than these five chapters we'll be in for the next few months. I would say John 13 through 17, the Upper Room Discourse, and then the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 are the two most comprehensive and important passages on discipleship in all the Bible. He who has mastered those passages is a disciple indeed. So I encourage you, whether you're a new convert or well-advanced in the faith, let's spend these weeks and months thoroughly studying these chapters together that we might better know our Savior and understand His heart. John Calvin has commented that while the other three Gospels show us Christ's body, John shows us Christ's soul. And nowhere is this more true than the Upper Room Discourse. And within the Upper Room Discourse, nowhere is this more true than the first verse of John 13. 
John 13.1 is a good transitional verse for us and serves as a fitting re-entry point back into the narrative of John's gospel. John 13.1 is something of a topical sentence for the rest of the Upper Room Discourse, indeed for the rest of the book. So let's read John 13.1 together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's an astounding verse. That's one of the sweetest verses in the Bible. This verse reveals to us the striking degree, the astounding degree to which Christ loves His disciples. And in these last few minutes, and it really is the last few minutes of this message before coming to the table, I just want us to marvel at the love of Christ in this passage. Three considerations, very briefly, that serve to make the love of Christ shine all the brighter in this passage. Number one, the context of the Last Supper, the condition of the disciples, and number three, the character of the love described. The context of the Last Supper. How does the context of the Last Supper serve to magnify the love of the Lord Jesus? We read, now before the feast of the Passover. They're going to celebrate just in a few minutes the feast of Passover together. The events of chapter 13, I believe, are just before the feast. Jesus is going to wash their feet before the feast itself. That's why we have that reference there. Now, before the feast of Passover, now, do you remember... Those of you well-versed in the Old Testament, do you remember the significance, the imagery of the Passover? God's people, the Israelites, are in bondage in Egypt, and God has sent Moses, his servant, to deliver God's people out of the hand of Pharaoh, and he's poured out his wonders, and we call them plagues, on the land of Egypt, and now comes the climactic final step before God is going to deliver his people. He says, the angel of death is going to come, and he's going to strike down all the firstborn in the land. The angel of death is coming, and firstborn children will be slaughtered, but God's people, the firstborn of the Israelite homes, will be delivered. And how will that happen? Well, the Israelites are instructed to kill a lamb, shed the blood, dip a reed in that blood, and put that blood over the top of their doors. And the angel of death will see that blood and will pass over their houses and the firstborn will be spared. Some of the richest imagery in all the Bible. A substitute will be provided. An angel of death comes, he'll see. The blood of a lamb is over the door. A sacrifice has been made, and no blood will be spilt in this house. This is the context for Jesus' death. The Passover pointed ahead to Jesus. There's no lamb at the Last Supper. He's the Paschal Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, and all those who believe in His blood and righteousness will be saved. He's about to shed His blood in fulfillment of everything the Passover pointed to. Well, that is to say, this feast of Passover has the gravest associations and implications. Death, slaughter, judgment, blood, eternity is on the line. The feast of Passover is at hand. Now, before the feast of Passover, now, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. What's he talking about? 
We've seen the hour before, haven't we? John chapter 2, Jesus' mother Mary comes to him. She wants him to do something about the lack of wine at the wedding. What does he say to her? Woman, my hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 30, they're the officers at the festival. No one laid a hand on him to arrest him because his hour had not yet come. But now feel the drama of this moment. The hour that has been anticipated is here. The hour for Jesus to die a bloody death, to go to the cross and to suffer the wrath of God. The hours come. He will be stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It will be the will of the Lord to crush him. The hours come. So, so we read, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, now how would you complete that sentence? He's moments away from the cross. You might think Jesus retreated to a high mountain, and there he communed with his Father. And so Jesus withdrew to a quiet place, and there he prayed and cried, poured his heart out to God. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's an amazing verse. As Calvin has said, we get a window into the soul of Christ. At a moment when we, he would have had every right to be self-absorbed, knowing what awaited him that night, betrayal, arrest, mock trials, crucifixion, scourgings, sin-bearing, wrath-bearing, all the horrors that were anticipated to such a degree that he sweat great drops of blood, his capillaries burst under the pressure of it all. In the face of his death for sinners, we might allow Jesus a moment of hesitation. Maybe a moment to himself, a moment of reflection. We could understand also if Jesus felt a sense of resentment even. He was having to do all of this because of sinners. In fact, he was doing this for the men who were looking him in the eye and acting like such buffoons in his presence. The sinners with whom he would have been most familiar. He's going to the cross for them. He's shedding his blood for them. He is taking the death blow for their selfishness and their pride and their sinfulness. Could we allow Jesus a moment of frustration, a moment of bitterness, even a, a, a moment of righteous and holy anger toward the sinners who are bringing about his gory death? But that's not what we find. He's not bitter, he's not resentful, he's not angry, he's not distracted. Even though he knows the hour of his death has arrived, he's thinking about them. He's attentive to them. He is altogether absorbed with their needs as he approaches his impending death, being crushed under the wrath 
of his father. As he looks ahead to being forsaken by God himself, what is in his heart and in his mind? His heart runs out in love toward his disciples. J.C. Ryle says he knew perfectly that he was about to suffer within 24 hours, but the knowledge and foresight of it did not absorb his thoughts so as to make him forget his little flock of followers. Christ, in the immediate foresight of his crucifixion, thought of others and loved his disciples to the end. It's the context of the Last Supper. The Passover is being celebrated, grave implications and associations. And the hour has come for Jesus to die. And this serves to magnify the love of Christ because we see him in that moment, altogether absorbed, not with his own needs, but with the needs of his disciples as he contemplates his hour. He is loving and serving his disciples. So let me say to you, as we prepare soon to come to the table together, the remembrance, the solemn remembrance of the bloodshedding and body breaking of the Lord Jesus. If Jesus' own impending death did not distract him from loving his disciples to the end, what on earth will distract him from loving you to the end? If he remained committed to love his disciples then, facing the hour, the fateful hour when he would die and would depart out of the world and be forsaken by God and crushed by the Father, if He is loving them then, will Christ not continue His love toward us? The second consideration that serves to magnify the love of Christ, the condition of the disciples. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Even though His death is right around the corner, He's loving them and all absorbed with them. These must be some pretty spectacular guys. So full of faith, so spiritually attuned to their Master, maybe overflowing with gratitude for the great sacrifice He was about to execute for them. You know, in our home settings, you might be willing to serve your spouse or your children, but you really want to be noticed, right? Just got to thank you and how far that can, make, that can go, right? You see, I did the dishes. Thank you would be nice. No one thanked the Lord Jesus. No one thanked the Lord Jesus. He's going to the cross. I think someone might have thanked Him. Well, this is the picture we find of the disciples, not men full of faith, not spectacular Christians. The verse doesn't say much about the condition of the disciples, but the coming passages do, and certainly other gospels inform our thoughts about what's going on with the disciples. Indeed, every single reference, as far as I know, I think this is true, every single reference to a particular disciple in the rest of John's gospel is disappointing. Every single reference to the disciples from here on out is going to be disappointing. A few verses from now, Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him. A few verses after that, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him. A few verses after that, Thomas reflects such sophomoric and childish understanding of why Christ came into the world. Few verses after that, Philip says, Oh Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long? Have you, have you still not grasped the basics? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Of course, we know from other gospel accounts, a few hours after this, Jesus is in the garden. He's encouraging his disciples to pray. 
He's sweating drops of blood. What are his disciples doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. The night of his passion, and they're sleeping. Of course, it's a few moments after that. The shepherd is struck, and the sheep scatter. They all abandon him when he's taken into custody. Peter denies the Lord with oaths and with swearing. I never knew the man. For God's sake, I never knew him. And then at the crucifixion itself, the disciples are nowhere to be found save the apostle John. They're not at his crucifixion. Isn't that amazing? These men who later on reflect back upon the crucifixion weren't there save for John. And when Jesus rises from the dead, it is evident no one expected that. They hardly believe it. Thomas, we know of his doubts, still struggles to believe unto the final degree. So here we are in John 13, 1. Jesus' hour has come, and what of the disciples? Well, we could hardly say they were men full of faith. How disappointing they must have been to Jesus. What failures, what weak and feeble men they were, and yet we read that all Jesus' thoughts toward them were love, having loved His own. He loved them to the end. J.C. Ryle again says, he knew perfectly, he knew perfectly that they were going to forsake Him and act like cowards, but that did not prevent Him from loving them. Listen, with all their weakness to the very end. He loved them with all their weakness to the very end. Are there any spouses here this morning who need to hear that? You need to love your husband and your wife with all their weakness? Love like Jesus? Just a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with a man, and he was talking about, you know, well, of course, we're required to be long-suffering with our spouse, but you know, that only goes to a certain point. Not according to this verse. To love with all their weakness to the very end. To do, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never fails, love never ends. And Jesus is providing us with this model here in this text. Now, if this is not grounds for encouragement, as sinners coming to the Lord's table, I don't know what is. How often do we feel weak and feeble like these men? How often are we aware of what disappointments we must be to our master? We can easily identify with the disciples. We can easily identify with Peter, right? Who acts like a coward in the face of opposition. We can identify with Philip, who though he had been with Jesus so long, still hadn't grasped the basics. We can identify with Thomas, who is consumed with doubts and still struggles to believe. Friends, this is us. This is us. These disciples at the Last Supper, this is us at the Lord's table this morning. How often is the condition of these disciples our reality, our experience? But as disappointing and as fragile and as sinful and as prone to failure as these men are and as we are, what do we read of the Savior? He loved his own. He loved them to the end. And we'll close with that thought, the third and final point. A third consideration that serves to magnify the love of Christ. It is the character 
of the love described. What is emphasized in this passion about in, in this passage about Jesus' love? Describing, John is describing the love of Jesus. He could describe the affection that was showed. He could describe this love in any number of ways. What is the way he chooses to describe it? It is a love that endures to the end. What does it mean that Jesus loved them to the end? I think three things, really. He loved them to the end in the sense that he loved them till his final breath. He loved them till his final breath, every moment, loved them to the end. Upon the cross, suffering the wrath of God, he loves them. He loves them until his final breath. But secondly, it means he loved them to the greatest lengths, the end in terms of lengths. How far would his love go? How far would his love take him? John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. He loves them to the greatest lengths. Have you thought about this, Christian? There is no other proof of the love of God. What more can he do to demonstrate his love? Do you know of a further length he could go? That being the Word made flesh and developing sympathy with us and suffering under the wrath of God in our place and dying for our sins? There at Calvary, we have the greatest proof of his love, the greatest lengths Christ has gone. And thirdly and finally, what it means that Jesus loved them to the end, he loved them to the end in terms of degree, to the uttermost. I'm not thinking in terms of length now, but in terms of intensity, degree, to the uttermost, he loves them. He is, they are in his heart unto the very end, to the greatest degree, to the completion of their salvation, such that nothing is lacking in Christ's love. He loves them with all the fullness of His love. This is the love of Christ for His own. For those disciples there at the Last Supper, for those of us who are united to Christ and have believed on Him by faith, who come to the Lord's table now. Let me just close by saying this to you. What we're going to see in the coming weeks is that this love that Jesus shows to his disciple is a model. He sets it forth as a paradigm, as an example for us to follow. That's not what I'm focusing on today. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. He's going to give them a new commandment in verse 34, to love one another. I want to close by saying something about God. No one has ever seen God. I've studied the Bible all of my life. I've never seen God. You who are outside of Christ, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer. And here you have a gathering of Christians. None of us professes to have seen God. No one has ever seen God. But we long to know what God is like. We can know what God is like. You can know what God is like. Because the only God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. And then you come to John 13, verse 1. The very image of God 
seated among his disciples. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And what's he doing? He's loving his own. You want to know what God is like? Study Jesus and see him as his heart runs out to his own in love. This is what God is like. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glimpse of your glory revealed in the person of your own dear Son. Those of us who have been saved by grace and who have been given the gift of faith. We proclaim with the Apostle John, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, how he was full of grace and truth. Filled up with love for his disciples. Thank you that this verse is in the Bible. That this is part of your revealed truth to us. That it is your unshakable purpose to love your people to the end. And that of all those, Father, you have given to the Son, he will not cast any of them out. They'll all come to him. They'll all be saved. They'll all be safe. That in him we have love that will endure to the end. It's not true of the culture around us. It's not true in the world in which we live. Love always fails. It seems that it always comes to an end. But your love is not like the love of this world. And how we praise you that it is so. You will love us with your final breath to the greatest lengths and to the uttermost. Oh God, how we praise you for what you have wrought in the gospel of your own dear Son. As we come to the table now, as we first sing in worship and as we come to partake of these elements, be with us. Convince us afresh of the gospel. Help each one of us to find the Lord Jesus in this observance and remembrance of his death, we pray. And it is in the Lord Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.